turn in the scriptures to Psalm 78. Psalm 78, a psalm of Asaph. We read the first 22 verses. This is the word of the Lord. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your hearts to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make, no, make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and, forget, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, whose spirit was not steadfast with God. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle, they kept not the covenant of God, and refused to walk in his law, and forgot his works and his wonders that he had showed them. Marvelous things did he in the sight of their fathers, in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea, and caused them to pass through, and he made the waters to stand as an heap. In the daytime also he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a light of fire." He clave the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as out of the great depths. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. And they sinned yet more against him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. And they tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. Yea, they spake against God. They said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Behold, he smote the rock that the waters gushed out, and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide flesh for his people? Therefore the Lord heard this and was wroth. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel, because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation. There ends our reading of God's holy word, the text for the sermon is verses 9 through 11. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders that he had showed them. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, in my own congregation I have begun a series mostly on the occasion of baptism, though not exclusively, from Psalm 78. And the first 11 verses, in my understanding, are Asaph's introduction. They are the introduction to the body of the psalm, and that he begins in verse 12. 
The introduction sets forth the the whole occasion, which is that Asaph is calling the people of God and speaking on behalf of God and saying, Give ear, listen up, incline your ears to what I'm going to say to you, because what I am going to say to you is profound. What I am going to say to you, what I am going to teach you is important. These sayings are dark. They must be opened up and seen in the light. Without these dark sayings, you'll be lacking something. These, these words that I will speak to you on the surface are simple. It is the history of the children of Israel from the time of their dwelling in Egypt to their salvation out of Egypt to their led, being led through the wilderness to being given a promised land and finally being established as a kingdom under David from whom Christ would come. It's not all of the history. It's, it's this portion of the history. And Asaph is going to tell the history in parables and dark sayings. He's going to open, up, open them up and he's going to draw out the deeper significance that abides, not just as a story. We love to tell the story, don't we? We love to hear the story, but we must grasp the story. We must understand the story, and we must see God and God's hand and God's servant, Jesus Christ, in that story. And so he calls them to give ear. And then he calls them to teach their children. He reminds them that the fathers have been told, commanded by God, to teach their children. That's two generations. And that they should teach the, ne- the, other, the children that should be born. That's three generations. And oh, by the way, he reminds them that what they are to teach their children and their children's children comes from their fathers. So four generations have heard the same instruction, the instruction of God's word, and these generations all learn the substance of it. They are all shown, and it is not hidden, the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done, and that God has given this knowledge of himself, this saving knowledge to four generations is because, he says in verse 5, Because God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel to the effect that his covenant might be continued through the line of believers and their seed. And then he gives a warning. And the warning is foreshadowing in its character. He warns them that they might not be as their fathers. The positive is that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. But the warning is, don't be as your fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, which doesn't mean that this generation he was speaking to necessarily had a stubborn and rebellious, had stubborn and rebellious parents. But that in that line, there are stubborn and rebellious generations One of them perished in the wilderness. Others would manifest at different points. The story be told to warn and restrain of hearts that were hard, rebellious, and vain. 
even the story of soldiers who faltered when battle was near, who kept not God's covenant, nor walked in his fear. That's the story that the Lord gives us tonight. Ephraim turned back in the day of battle. First, let's consider the illustration, then the explanation, and finally, the application. The children of Ephraim are referenced in the text. The children of Ephraim have a prominent place in the history of God's covenant. Ephraim, you children in catechism and Sunday school, you know who Ephraim was. Not the tribe, but the person. He was one of the two sons of Joseph. And Ephraim wasn't the oldest. Ephraim was the youngest. It was another case besides Jacob and Esau in which the blessing went to the younger son. And that was not because Joseph wanted it to go to the younger son. Joseph brought, Eph- brought Manasseh to Jacob's right hand and Ephraim to Jacob's left hand. But Jacob blessed them in the opposite way, and he gave Ephraim the double portion. And so Ephraim, as a tribe, became great among the children of Israel. They, they became prominent. They were on the foreground amongst the whole tribes. Ephraim became so great that sometimes when Ephraim is referred to in the Bible, it's not speaking about the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim is referring to all of Israel. Ephraim is referred to generally, and that happens especially after the division of the kingdom, because among the ten northern tribes, Ephraim is far and away dominating those ten tribes. They are overwhelmingly larger than those ten tribes. And so, in the prophet Hosea, for example, you read of many references to Ephraim, because Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom, and he's speaking of Ephraim, 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 and he's speaking to the whole of the ten tribes. And in Ephraim, speaking to all of Israel. Ephraim was a great tribe. There are some great heroes who came from that tribe. The most famous happened, came up early on, and that's Joshua, the son of Nun. And Joshua was a mighty warrior and a mighty leader and a faithful leader at that, bringing Israel into the land of Canaan as a successor to Moses. Most infamously, from the ranks of the tribe of Ephraim, is Jeroboam I. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin by making the golden calves and leading them away from the line of David. Those two names, keep those two names in mind just from this point of view, is that they tell us about the trajectory of Ephraim. Ephraim The younger of the two sons of Joseph was blessed by God through Jacob and made great. And in their greatness, they were mighty leaders and mighty warriors. And we have Joshua to illustrate their greatness and their fearlessness and their faithfulness. And then through their history, they remained great in number and they boasted in themselves. But then Their trajectory was downward, and as history went along, Jeroboam is the one who better represents Ephraim, and he caused Israel to sin, and he was leading an apostasy in the nation of tribes of Israel. And then from there, the trajectory goes down even further. Ephraim would go down to the dust, 
and be scattered among the nations. Ephraim is an apostatizing tribe. We need to keep in mind two perspectives of Ephraim. We need to see Ephraim the tribe and we need to see Ephraim as a great tribe that is so dominating Israel that they really represent all of Israel. Because that's how the scriptures refer to Ephraim. There are two reasons though why we need to on the foreground is the tribe of Ephraim. One is that Asaph was inspired to write Ephraim and not Israel. So we begin there. And so from that we can learn two things. Two things are intended, at least, to come into our mind. The children of Ephraim. What are we supposed to be thinking? What would Israel be thinking when Asaph, almost out of nowhere, brings in the children of Ephraim? That would light up the minds of the children of Israel as a whole. And they would be thinking two things. One, they'd be thinking warfare. Ephraim, in all of their greatness and their blessedness and their great territory, had a large army and they loved to fight. Israel needed the armies of Ephraim for their warfare. Ephraim was skilled with the instruments of warfare. Joshua was a leader among Israel. Second only perhaps to David, there was no greater warrior than Joshua. They loved warfare so much that you almost might say of Ephraim that they had a bloodlust. They were a war-loving people. Ephraim would become angry when the children of Israel or some of the children of Israel would go to war and not call the armies of Ephraim to join and fight with them. When Gideon went to war... And he did so without the armies of Ephraim. They confronted him and they sharply chided with him. When Jephthah went to war without the armies of Ephraim, they were offended that he would not call them. And so to speak of the children of Ephraim, to make reference to them, was to make reference to a war-like tribe, a war-loving tribe. Second thing that would come into the mind of the children of Israel, and perhaps not the generation who first heard this psalm of Asaph, but what arises out of all of the scriptures from our New Testament perspective about the children of Ephraim is what I illustrated in that trajectory from greatness to the dust. And so what comes to our mind is apostasy. They fell away from God. They forfeited their blessed state. They were given over to their unfaithfulness. This apostasy is illustrated in one case, and that is Jeroboam, the son of Ephraim, who rejected the line of David and with Israel rejected Jesus Christ, and we also rejected the true worship of God in the temple and the sacrifices that were administered there. Ephraim went the way of obstinacy. And if you read through Hosea sometime, take note of all the characterizations of Ephraim. They are not flattering. Ephraim is turned aside. Ephraim is become as a stubborn heifer. 
Ephraim is a silly dove without heart fluttering to this ally to Assyria. Oh, they're not helping. We'll flutter over to this side to Egypt. Ephraim is a cake not turned. They are half-baked. They are never truly repentant. They are never ready for God. Ephraim sows the wind. They sow emptiness and they would reap the whirlwind. Ephraim was going to be cut off. Ephraim was going to be scattered among the nations. Ephraim was going to be decimated. And as an institution, God was going to totally destroy them. And he would no longer call his children from among the children of Ephraim, though he may have had his remnant among them. As an institution, as a tribe, as a nation, they were finished. And justly so. So that's what we have in mind. A warring tribe... who we know will be cut off. And now we're told that they turned back in the day of battle. Famed for great military might, that they turned and ran away. For our own imagination, we can point to different examples. We can look to the days of Samuel when the tabernacle was in Shiloh. Shiloh was in the territory of Ephraim, by the way. And Eli was there at the tabernacle, and his sons Hophni and Phinehas were doing great and wicked deeds in the tabernacle with the women of Israel. They were desecrating the sacrifices and robbing God of the fattest portions of the sacrifices. And Hophni and Phinehas were, took it upon themselves to fight the Philistines, and they took the Ark of the Covenant with them as though it was magic and would give them the victory, as though the Ark was God himself. And they took the Ark, and the Philistines were afraid, and they were ready to fight. We will not turn back. We will not be afraid. We will quit ourselves like men. And we were, because they did fear the Ark. And they feared the God of the Ark because of what it had done in the past. We read in 1 Samuel 4 verse 10 that the Philistines fought and Israel was smitten and they fled every man into his tent and there was a very great slaughter for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen and the ark of God was taken and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. Or you could look to one of Joshua's few failures when he took the children of Israel to fight against just a little city of Ai and they turned and fled. Or you could look to the flight of Saul from the Philistines and certainly others as well. We don't know. We frankly do not know which battle is being referred to. We're not told enough detail, and that's not the point. The point is, they turned back. Let's then consider this illustration of the children of Ephraim and their turning back in the day of battle and see how the text explains this failure and this defeat. There are three parts that need to be explained. First, we need to understand the day of battle in the text. We need to understand what that entailed for Ephraim and how that, what that means for us. We need to understand that they were armed and carrying bows and what that meant for them and for us. And we need to understand that they turned back and what that means for them and for us. 
The warfare of Ephraim was earthly warfare. Children, Grace Protestant Reformed Church doesn't have an army of soldiers that go forth with bows and fight enemies by shedding their blood. We don't have that kind of army, but Ephraim did. The children of Ephraim, the boys, when they are young, they would learn to shoot the bow and they would learn to wield the sword. And they would watch as their older brothers would go off to the army and listen for the trumpet to sound which called them to battle in the east or in the west or on the north or on the south. And the children of Ephraim learned to love the day of battle. And they were excited and they would gather as the soldiers would go forth to war. And they loved to hear the trumpet sound. That was the time for Ephraim whose unique calling and unique giftedness was that they could contribute to the warfare of Israel on behalf of God's covenant. That they would be on the forefront of those battle lines and the band of God would be over their army and they would be waving it proudly and they would go forth into battle confidently even against great armies God would give them the victory Ephraim was well acquainted with the day of battle and now the little children might have been naive to what really happens when they go into warfare but the armies were not the older boys were not the young men the, the fierce, strong men of Ephraim knew what battle was about. And they would go into warfare and they knew that it was their calling. They must fight. And they must not be afraid. They knew that the people that they were fighting were enemies of God and they would not hesitate to shed their blood. This was unholy blood. These were uncircumcised peoples. They knew that it was their calling to destroy them utterly. Think of Joshua of Ephraim who went into battle and they would wipe out, they had the calling to wipe out the land. They'd fail in that, but it was their calling. And they were not ignorant of the gruesome nature of battle and how it pulled, apart, that pulled them apart to their core and how it required every muscle in their body and how they needed to be at the ready at all times and they needed to be alert and they needed to be skilled with the sword and accurate with the bow and they, how it would require great insights into the strategies of warfare to be in the right positions and how they would go forth and there would be clashes in the heat of battle and they would their own blood may be shed and they would certainly shed the blood of their enemies and how that would be taxing for them and taxing for their family and a great price would be paid in battle they understood warfare they knew it the army was not ignorant and they were not naive. They knew what it would require of them and they knew what it meant to fight in this battle and they understood, and this is perhaps more important than anything else, they understood the ramifications of warfare. It's been too long and that's not, a, not too long for my part, but it's been too long for us to be acquainted with that kind of warfare, some of the oldest generations among us know it. Maybe a few among us who have been in battle. But the ramifications of warfare, which we must be aware of, is that when an army goes into war, there is one or the other who will be defeated. And the result for the defeated nation is they are deprived of their freedom. 
They bring great consequences and trials into their families and their nation and their society. And there is a disgrace that goes through them and to their banner. We have a calling to go into the day of battle. The battle is not earthly, it is spiritual. The enemies, however, are the same. They are the same in their essence. They represent the same cause, the cause of the world that is opposed to God. The consequences are serious as ever. The clash of battle is as intense as ever. The cause of the kingdom is yet God's cause, the same kingdom that Ephraim fought for and the the destruction of God's enemies. The calling to fight still applies now to Grace PRC and to the Protestant Reformed churches and to all true churches of Jesus Christ. Now we have a calling as individual soldiers to fight. That's true too. We fight against the threefold enemy of sin, the world, and Satan. Sin, especially as it is within ourselves. Satan, as he is lurking about, seeking to devour us. And the world, as it influences us and attacks us. And failure in that battle individually brings great personal consequences into our lives and gives occasions for our neighbors to blaspheme our cause and our God. But the text is not applied to individuals. The text is applied to the children of Ephraim, to the tribe, to the nation. And so the better application for us today is, for, is, is as a congregation and as a church. The church goes to battle. The church must engage in spiritual warfare and not turn back. The church must fight against Satan and be on guard against the temptations of Satan. The church must be on guard against the world and the influence of the world as it desensitizes our children to wickedness and as it attacks our children with outright oppression and even attacks the, all generations. The church must fight against sin within the church And outside of the church, the church must have its eye upon all of the members as a whole and how sin creeps in among us and moves about us and influences the members of the church, even from our own selves. The church must fight this warfare, and the church does this, of course, primarily through the preaching of the gospel and the exercise of Christian discipline, through the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The church must be fighting, but not only officially through those means. The church as a whole, it involves all the members collectively. We must be on guard against the enemies of sin, Satan, and the world. We must be alert to the advances of the enemy. We must be engaged in the spiritual warfare of the church. We must be participating in Christian discipline as a congregation by admonishing sin and staying awake and alert to temptations and by correcting our brothers and sisters where it is necessary. We must be engaged in battle. The cause of God is at stake and the glory of God, our witness, is at stake. And so also are our children at stake. 
Ephraim was armed and carrying bows. That means that they were prepared, well-equipped for battle. They were, their weapons were made out of earthly materials, out of wood and string. Their weapons could inflict earthly wounds and fatal blows. Those arrows could pierce armor and strike the heart, cause a man to die. When wielded skillfully and courageously, collectively, those weapons were capable of great wonders. They could take down entire armies, armies even that were superior in numbers. The bow especially was able to strike from a long distance and it would It could traverse the walls and get into the city and do great damage. Those weapons needed to be wielded skillfully and collectively, but those weapons could cast down whole kingdoms and great kings. Ephraim had the weapons in their hands. They carried them into battle. They were skilled in the use of them. They had the training and the preparation, and they were not being ambushed in this day of battle. They walked into it ready to fight. Another aspect of their being armed, it's not just that they had the weapon, but that they were called. They had the calling. They went to fight and they did so rightly so. They had the one true God who had given them that mandate to be victorious through battle. Ephraim was armed in that way Unlike any other nation in the world, there were all kinds of nations around them, and from a certain point of view, all the surrounding neighbors were empty-handed. But Ephraim had the calling from the one true God, the commission to go forth and fight, and therefore they had the, the main piece, the main instrument of warfare, which was that mandate. So also the children of the church are armed. They are armed with a covenant calling and a place in God's covenant and the knowledge that it is God's banner, the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ that waves over us and that we carry into battle. And we go forth with that as our chief weapon, the knowledge that God is for us. But also we have our own weapon and it is not a bow. We do not shoot arrows. We do not draw the sword and strike and shed blood, but we take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal but spiritual, but they are fit for the casting down of strongholds and the destruction of kingdoms. We are armed and our children are armed with the Word of God, and that Word of God can go forth and strike the hearts of the enemies and destroy them That word of God can be wielded with our tongues and go forth and go right into Satan's ears and Satan will flee at that word of God. That word of God can be wielded against our own sinful flesh and we speak to, as it were, to Satan who is in our flesh and guiding our flesh. Get thee behind me, Satan. We resist the devil and he flees from us and we put that sinful nature to death in the cross of Jesus Christ. We have the gospel 
the gospel of Jesus Christ in our hand and on our tongues and we preach the gospel to ourselves and we remind ourselves that the victory is ours in Jesus Christ. The battle is the Lord's. We have that as our armor and then we go forth against the enemies and it may, re- it may turn the enemies and gain the enemy or it may destroy them. We have what is necessary to understand what we must do, the way we must go, what we are called to believe, what we must confess. The word of God reveals it to us. We understand that this warfare really manifests itself. We can characterize it, summarize it, generalize it in this way. It's the antithesis. The spiritual warfare, the collective spiritual warfare of the church It takes place in our homes, it takes place in our schools, it takes place in the congregation, it takes place on your Friday night gatherings as young people and in your social lives as as adults and, and as office bearers in your meetings. It's the antithesis. To be separate from the world with the word as our power, our weapon, and our guide. To be consecrated unto God. And that tells us what it means to turn back. Ephraim turned back in the day of battle. And if we conceive of this battle as in terms of the antithesis, to be turned back or to turn back and run away from the enemies is to surrender, to give in to defeat, to take down the flag of the Lord Jesus Christ Put it away and hide it, stash it somewhere. We still want it. We still come to church. We still go to the good Christian schools. We wear it across our chest on, in our sports events. It's written all over our homes, on the signs and the walls. We have all the habits. We put on our Sunday best. We go to make sure our neighbors see us go to church. But where the rubber meets the road, we've lost the battle. Turned back. Ephraim ran away. That verb in the text, turned back, tells us something about why they ran away and fled. It's in the Hebrew language, a perfect tense verb, a perfect tense. Now, if it was a present tense verb, that means this is a present action, it's ongoing, it's happening. They were turning back, they are turning back, but it's a perfect tense. It's stating a fact, a present condition. The perfect tense says, here's what's happened And it's happened as a result of what has gone on before it. That's the perfect tense. Here's what's happened, and it's it's because of what's happened before. And so it's pointing us to look back. Something in the background explains why their present state is that they are running for their lives away from their enemies. And then we are given the background in verses 10 and 11. This is what's been happening in Ephraim. This is what explains why they turned back in battle. They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law and forget his works and his wonders that he had showed them. They were unfaithful. 
They were unfaithful in the covenant, and as a result of their unfaithfulness, God gave them over to their enemies. God put cowardice in in their hearts, fear in their hearts, so that they ran away. God gave them over to the sins that they were tolerating. God gave them over to their unbelief that they they allowed to linger in their hearts and in their confessions. God gave them over to all of their unfaithfulness, and so that it showed itself in this disgraceful way. They ran away. The punishment fits the crime. The punishment hits the proud right where they are boasting. And Ephraim was boasting in their mighty works of warfare and their great army. And God strikes Ephraim down and says, you're nothing without me. And he caused them to turn back. And this is what God had warned them of. They knew this would be the result if they walked in this way of unfaithfulness. Turn with me in the scriptures to Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26, part of the law of Moses. God was making known his covenant to the people of God. And he was teaching them their obligations in the covenant. And he also, in this chapter, gives them... The assurance of the blessings that they shall experience in the covenant according as they walked in his statutes. Leviticus 23, 26, verse 3. If ye walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase. And then verse 7, here's another blessing. And ye shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you shall chase an hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. And then go to verse 14. It's a transition from the positive to the negative. But if ye will not hearken unto me, and will not do all these commandments... Or if ye despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgments, so that ye will not do all my commandments, but that ye break my covenant, I I also will do this unto you. And then verse 17. And I will set my face against you, and ye shall be slain before your enemies. They that hate you shall reign over you. And ye shall flee when none pursueth you. And if ye will not yet, and if ye will not yet for all this hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. So notice there's a progression here. There's a failure to keep God's covenant, a breaking of God's covenant, and a defeat. This is probably this this uh, defeat of Ephraim happened somewhere on this trajectory, and it's not way at the end. It happened somewhere on this trajectory. But Ephraim wouldn't hearken. So they're going to go further. And I will punish you seven times more for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power. And I will make your heaven as iron and your earth as brass. He's going to humble them. And then go to verse 25. Verse 23 says, If ye will not be reformed by me, by these things. Then another consequence, verse 25, And I will bring a sword upon you, 
that shall avenge the quarrel of my covenant. And when ye are gathered together within your cities, I will send the pestilence among you, and ye shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. Ephraim proved himself to be a transgressor and an impenitent transgressor. Their sin was that they kept not God's covenant. They refused to walk in his law. To keep God's covenant is to cleave to the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by a true faith to trust in Him alone, to rely upon Him in sincerity from the heart, and to follow after Him and to keep His word. The keeping of the covenant is to know God and love God through Jesus Christ. The keeping of the covenant for Ephraim was to find refuge in the blood of the covenant shed in the temple in Jerusalem, whom whom the true priest would offer and bring into the Holy of Holies and take that blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat To keep the covenant was to cleave to the God and to the Savior who was represented in that worship and to cleave to the, the Son of God who was reigning on the throne even in David and in David's line. But they departed from that line and they departed from that true worship. They despised God. They despised Jesus Christ as King. They despised Him as priest. And they would, in their history, despise Him as prophet. For Hosea would call Ephraim to repentance over and over again. And Amos would call Ephraim to repentance over and over again. And yet they would not hearken. And so Ephraim, or rather Hosea, would pronounce judgment upon them. They had sown the wind, and they would reap the whirlwind. Their lack of faithfulness corresponded with and went hand in hand with their lack of remembrance. Their lack of remembrance of the wonders and the works that God had done. They forgot His works. They forgot the works that he had done in the fields of Zoan in Egypt, the ten plagues and works of power that he had done to redeem them. They forgot the work that God had done in bringing them out of Egypt with the death of the firstborn of all who had not the blood of the covenant spread upon their doorpost, the blood of the lamb pointing to their Savior. They forgot the work that God did when he took the waters of the Red Sea and spread them and allowed Israel to pass through on dry ground, signifying a baptism, a washing of that nation, and a cleansing of them and the destruction of their enemies who pursued them. They forgot the presence of God in their midst with a pillar of cloud by day in a brilliant, bright, illuminating pillar of fire, holy fire by night, leading them through the wilderness. They forgot that God rained manna down from heaven, a bread that angels would eat and that would sustain them all their days. They forgot that God took, commanded Moses to smite the rock and rivers, rivers, not just to trickle, rivers of water came out of that rock for feeding two million people in the wilderness. They forgot the works God had done. And you know what that means for us? In our context? 
describes a church which has forgotten the gospel. Because all of those works, whether in the, the blood upon the doorpost, the washing of baptism in the Red Sea, the rock from which they drank, the bread they ate from heaven, the presence of God among them, leading them and protecting them, they all point to Jesus Christ. And the salvation he works for his people and love for them. Which is the only explanation for their place in the promised land. They gained not the land by the edge of the sword. Their own arm to them could no safety afford. But God's right hand saved and the light of his face because of his favor and wonderful grace. And now Ephraim knew these stories. They knew the stories. But as as a collective tribe, and that's the way it happens, it may be in the institution. But they weren't thinking on these things. They forgot. It wasn't in their mind. And if it's not in their mind, that tells us it wasn't in their heart. So, beloved congregation, what is in your heart from day to day? What is on your mind? Are you even aware that we are engaged in battle? I pray that you are. And as you go into battle... As you send your children out the door, are they ready for battle? How will they be ready? You make sure they have the gospel in their hearts and minds. And they won't forget it. Ephraim didn't turn back because they were caught off guard. Because they were scared. Because they were overwhelmed. Because they weren't properly prepared. From the point of view of having the weapons, Ephraim turned back because they had cold, hard hearts toward God and the Christ of the gospel. They trusted in themselves. They boasted in themselves. And God humbled them appropriately. We must be warned of this sin and of this judgment and be not as a stubborn and rebellious generation. And not only for our own sake and for the sake of our children, but lest occasion to the enemy be given to blaspheme. The application of this text is... as to do with Asaph's purpose. Asaph's purpose is that the children of Israel would be taught and that they would be warned and restrained and learn from the failures of stubborn and rebellious generations that had gone before them. Parents, grandparents, teachers, office bearers, 
and collectively as a congregation, teach your children. That's the application. Teach your children about Ephraim, about Ephraim's greatness and blessedness, and about the God who made them great. Show them Ephraim's skill in warfare. And the little children can learn that. They can, they can appreciate a great army versus a small army, and skilled warriors versus unskilled. Explain that, what it means to have a holy zeal for warfare, and why the church would love to fight like Israel was eager to fight when called into battle. Instruct them in, in the weapons of warfare. Teach them about the bows that Ephraim wielded and draw out the spiritual significance of the word of God and the sword of the spirit and give them the sword of the spirit. Give them a knowledge of the word. Don't neglect that. Teach them many things. Teach them how to hit. Teach them how to throw. Teach them how to catch. Teach them how to, how to run. How to run fast for a short distance. How to run for a long distance. Teach them. But teach them the word above all and arm them for battle. Teach them the things of God, His praises, His wonderful works that He has done, His strength. Teach them about Jesus Christ and lead them to Jesus Christ, who is the captain of our salvation. Show them God's wonderful works, which He has done for Israel, the works of salvation. Yes, go back to Egypt. Show them the plagues. Learn about the water to blood and the frogs and the lice and the flies and the darkness and the slaying of the firstborn. Teach them about the Red Sea and the pillars of cloud and by fire. But don't neglect to bring them to the true deliverance which is done by Jesus Christ through his perfect life, perfect obedience and suffering at the hands of God against our sins, paying our debt and his exaltation in heaven above for our interests. Teach them about his unconditional love and his abundant mercy, about his wonderful grace. And teach them also, and do not neglect to teach them the obligations that they have in the covenant. And make sure they know that the keeping of the covenant for our part, for as in all covenants there are contained two parts, make sure they know that this is not to gain an entrance into the covenant and does not become even a part of our righteousness before God. But don't let that qualification detract from the obligation and show them what it means to cleave to the one true God from the heart and by a true faith, to cling to Jesus Christ and his righteousness as our own, and to seek all good things from him only. Teach them to trust in him, to find refuge in him and strengthen him. Teach them that our strength and our glory and our boast as Grace PRC is not in anything, but in the Lord Jesus and his cross. Teach your children that so that they cleave to that cross and show them what happens when we forget the cross of Christ and how the antithesis battle will be lost 
And we'll have the form of godliness, but we'll be denying the power thereof. And we will not have, we will not be living in faithfulness to God. We'll just have a show of it. And worldliness will overrun our homes, and worldliness will overrun our schools, and worldliness will overrun our church, until finally the children have no interest in the things of God, and they depart from the church. And that's the New Testament version of the scattering of Ephraim. There are grievous, grievous consequences to unfaithfulness to God in the covenant. And our children will feel it as much as we will, if not more. Teach them and fight with them. And let The negative example of Ephraim warn you children and restrain you. And as a congregation, let us all be warned and restrained from our sinful inclinations and forgetfulness. And in that way, there will be a positive step forward. And the positive step forward would have been similar for the children of Israel who heard Asaph's psalm, his parable and his dark sayings. Because they could look back and they would see there was indeed a stubborn and rebellious generation. We do remember that shameful day in the history of the children of Ephraim. Those are our people. We remember that. It was a dreadful day, a shameful day for all of us. But here we are. It's not because we're so different from them, but it is because our God is faithful, that His love is eternal and unconditional, and that takes nothing away from the consequences that our fathers endured. They're terrible, but God has not forsaken us altogether, and that's for Jesus' sake. Remember him, beloved. Remember him, and in remember him, in, in remembering him, go forth and make your boast in the Lord. And lean not on your own understanding, and forget not the works that he has done for you. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we pray that thou wilt forgive our weaknesses and infirmities and turn us away from our unfaithfulness and that thou wilt be pleased for Jesus' sake out of thine own good pleasure to continue thy covenant with our children and our children's children and grant us the grace to fight in the eyes of faith to always look to Jesus Christ and cling to him and his strength and in him we shall do valiantly. In Christ alone do we pray. Amen.